to Movement Conversations, a podcast powered by New Generations. I'm Roy Morand, your host for season two, and I'm excited about what we've got lined up for you this season. If those of you who are not familiar with New Generations want to go to newgenerations.org, you can find out more about us. We're in about 55 different countries with over 900 engagements focusing on about 150 plus movements uh, at the moment. So love to have you learn more about us. I would also love to have you subscribe to this podcast so you'll get alerted every time we drop a new episode as well as to share it with your friends. Let them know what's going on and get a few more people in our conversation. uh, That's enough about uh, the intro. Let's get into our guest for today. Hey, welcome to the uh, New Generations uh, Movement Podcast. Uh, as we have these uh, movement discussions uh, today, we're uh, privileged to have Mark Fields with us. Uh, Mark has a long history uh, in the vineyard movement and uh, a, a long history, really, uh, in in disciple making movements uh, stuff around the world uh, globally. And so, I, I'm just excited to have you here, Mark. Thanks for being a part of this. Well, it's my honor to be with you. Thank you. So give us a little context here. Uh, who, who is Mark Fields and, and, and how is it that, that you have got to where you are today? Yeah, so, so I mean, the important things are around family. So I've been married for 42 years. I have three adult children, eight grandkids. Oh, wow. You know, those are a big part of my life. Um, in ministry, I was ordained in 1978. That was actually the year that I met John Wimber. And... Um, we pastored a church for a little over 20 years, 22 years or so. And then um, for the last 23 years, I was the person who oversaw missions for the vineyard churches in the U.S. Wow. So uh, you, you are a statesman in that regard, then, I think. <laughs> Is that, that's a, maybe maybe that, that's not a, something you'd use for yourself, but I just, uh, it's impressive. So, so at least a survivor. <laughs> I'm still here. I still love Jesus. I still am committed to the church. I'm still working for the kingdom. Yeah, Yeah. that's cool, man. I love your your stats on marriage and grandkids. I've been married 44 years, nine grandkids. I know that life. It's, uh, it's, it's really a sweet time. I never dreamed about being a grandparent, but, uh, it's, I should have, because it's been, it's been a blast. So, um, well, tell us, uh, in your, um, 20 years in, in the church and then in the global missions, where did you run across this disciple making movement strategy? And what were you thinking when you first uh, were exposed to it? Yeah. So I have a long commitment to seeing churches planted. And so the church that that we led planted nine churches during the time that I was there. And those were more traditional church plants, mainly in the U.S., but a couple outside the U.S. of some people that had been interns with us when they had been in the States um, studying at Fuller Seminary. And then in my role, so I have a heart for that, of seeing the church expand and to see that happen by church planting. And I had felt early on that God had spoken to me clearly that that what came out from what we were doing would be greater than what we did there. And so in a commitment to see that happen, we were engaged in planting churches. Then I moved into the role that I had of developing missions for the vineyard. We were in nine countries when I began, and we were in 81 when when I um, 
began to move out of that role earlier this year. So, so I have a commitment to seeing that happen. Now, what happened with DMM is this, is that I had finished my PhD in missiology at Fuller. And it was just literally a few weeks after that, I had someone come up to me and said, you know, I sense God saying something for you, Mark. Now I'm fairly visible in the vineyard. So that happens a lot. And I, I heard a lot of things that weren't particularly helpful or perhaps were self-serving or whatever. And so I'm always cautious when someone does that, but this person, I have a lot of confidence in her and had watched her not be that kind of person. And so she says to me, God is calling you back to kindergarten. Now, I was more than mildly offended. I mean, here I had just finished a terminal degree, a PhD in missiology, as I said, at Fuller, and God seemed to have missed that fact and, you know, was, was asking that I, I go to kindergarten. There was a ring of truth in it, and that began a negotiation process. Well, God, could I, like, do another master's degree or could I do another whatever, you know, and, and, and God is, is fairly diligent in what he pursues with us. And so all of my efforts at negotiation to say, couldn't I go back to at least junior high? No, it's back to kindergarten resulted in my finally resigning to that, though I did not know what it meant. But it, it sat in the back of my head, this idea that after all of this formal education, God was calling me back to, to a beginning. And then it was not long after that, that we had a change of top leadership in the vineyard. And so one national director was resigning, a new national director was being put in place. And so the leadership gathering that that was, transition was being talked about um, was happening. And the the outgoing national director spoke on Monday night and the incoming national director, although his term was still a few months from beginning, was speaking on Tuesday morning. And so the incoming national director said to me, well, Mark, I want to share the stage with some other people tomorrow morning. And he goes, I want you to be one of those. And what I want you to do is I want you to give, I don't want you to share a story. I want, which I do a lot of stories. He said, I want you to, um, give a biblical theology of mission. I want you to give vision for the future and you're going to have four minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I appreciate a challenge. I mean, again, this is Monday night. This is going to happen Tuesday morning. And so I, I thought, okay. And so I picked a verse from Genesis and a verse from Revelation for my biblical theology of mission. I figured that covered it. And then the question was, what was vision going to be? And at that time, we had seen, I don't know, 800 or so churches planted outside the U.S. So we had some momentum and things happening. And I, I went to, I, I sat there and I thought about it. You know, what should I do? Should I say 800 more churches? And then I thought, you know, we have momentum and there's other groups involved, with, you know, there are other nations involved with this. You know, maybe I should say a thousand because, of course, vision always comes in clear round numbers. <laughs> and, and then much to my embarrassment, it was only at that point that I thought perhaps I should pray. And so I offered God magnanimously the choice between option A, which was 800 more churches or option B, which was a thousand more churches. And, and gave the opportunity for God to speak. And whatever I sensed is what I determined I was going to say the next morning. And as God often does, the answer that I felt like I got as clear as I've ever sensed anything from God was, you've learned to plant hundreds of churches. Now I want you to learn to plant thousands. Mm. 
And that sort of shook me because it was incredibly unexpected. I mean, honestly, I thought it was going to be 800 or a thousand. I would go out and announce that no big deal. And I was actually kind of nervous because I thought this feels very audacious. That's not my style. You know, how are people going to react? Thankfully, people know me well enough that they know that I would never say anything simply for effect or, or self-aggrandizement or whatever. So I, I went out the next morning and shared that and got really good response. But then I didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, if we've learned to plant hundreds, how are we going to learn to plant thousands? And I literally, for a couple of years, was uncertain where to go with that. And I had gone away on an eight-day silent retreat. It's a structured retreat. You don't do any talking except to one person who gives you some assignments and listens to your reflections of what God's doing in your life for about 45 minutes each day. And I remember it was one afternoon, probably day five or six. So I've not spoken for five or six days at this point. And I came back from lunch and I sat down on my bed and I pulled out my Bible to read the passage that had been assigned to me. And suddenly I knew what to do. And I think it took several days of just being quiet enough to really allow that to bubble up. And, you know, it had been an eventful few days, but not around this. And I, I knew what to do. And so I left that retreat a couple of days later, it was up in the San Francisco area where the retreat center that I was at. And I just started to reach out to people who knew had planted lots of churches. And I called people and I called people who knew people. And I ended up um, investigating about a dozen movements around the world. So I, I spent a week with the conservative Baptists up in the north of Honduras. I spent a week with the Fresh Expressions people in the UK traveling around in time with their leadership team. And I just, you know, with, with one of the larger movements, Pentecostal movements in Indonesia, I mean, it was just kind of a broad span. And in the midst of that, someone told me that there was going to be a person giving a talk on DMM at the Frontiers headquarters in the Phoenix area. And so we have a lot of connection with Frontiers, and they graciously allowed two of us to come. And that's where I met Dave Hunt. And Dave was sick, so he didn't complete the teaching, but I was really quite gripped by what I heard and then began to connect more with the um, fresh express or with the, uh, the new, at that time, city team folks around DMM. And they were incredibly kind to me. So I spent a week up in the San Francisco Bay Area looking at what happened amongst Latino immigrants there and then time in both East and West Africa. And it just, as I look and say, okay, what, um, what feels like what God is on? So discernment is a very important issue for me. And discernment has to do with distinguishing the work of God. And so when I look and I say, okay, this is what, what does God seem to be doing? That just stood out, the connection with Jerry Trousdale. I mean, and so things have then developed from there. Yeah. Wow. So any um, friction that you felt as you saw this, uh, you know, these guys, uh, you know, using kind of Bible reading to in, in engage people with God and, and that kind of stuff, any, any frictions in their, their tactics 
that that you felt or you just felt like you just fell right into it and saw it and it was just like really amazing yeah i think it was more the latter what happened is is that i i'm a I, I analyze, I, I like to look for patterns. I mean, I think that's part of discerning the work of God is noticing ways that God works consistently in a variety of environments. So I took all the research that I had done and I boiled it down to 10 points of intersection that out of this dozen or so, you know, movements that I had looked at, they had in common. And then all of a sudden I realized these marked the early vineyard movement. And so these were things that maybe explained why the vineyard grew as rapidly as it did. And so what I saw were things that in actuality, though the language was somewhat different, the practices were very familiar to me. So it was really falling into it with just a sense of excitement. And in the early days of the vineyard, one thing that marked what happened was there was just this sense of learning. I mean, no one was an expert. Everyone was on an adventure. The times of getting together were sharing stories of amazement at what God was doing, you know, pondering challenges, looking for answers. But it was, there was just a sense of adventure. And that's what I found again around the folks engaged with disciple making movements. And as a result of that, then you got a number of vineyard churches involved globally. Uh, I, I know specifically about some of the involvement in West Africa, uh, and you you began to make these connections. I know Yunusa uh, spoke, you know, numerous times for you guys uh, at your your missions conference and that kind of stuff. Um, talk a little bit about how churches you know got involved and what it did for them. Yeah. So what I did is I we have we had an annual gathering at at the Navigators facility in Colorado Springs. So beautiful, beautiful setting. And we would gather kind of a, around a 200 of the key people involved with missions in Vineyard in the U.S. And so the way that we've structured things is not as a traditional mission agency, but empowering local churches to engage directly in the places that they're called to be involved. And so we worked hard at, at trying to identify those things that were necessary to support churches in being involved cross-culturally. So in that gathering, I began to share about my journey and I, um, you know, had indicated part of the story as I've shared with you and I went through those 10 points and those got far more traction than I imagined. I mean, I still hear people talking about those. And then, you know, for the old time vineyard people, it felt like those captured what was unique about the vineyard at its inception. And for people who were newer, it, people were saying, well, that makes sense to me that this is why it was what it was. So out of that, um, I, and then I began to talk about specific examples with the group I had, groups I had visited. And the place, again, where the most traction seemed to be around what God was doing was with DMM. And so folks began to um, look into that more independently. And we had lots of conversations. And so there just developed a, yeah, a sense of interest in, in that in particular, which only fueled more as people said, well, we need to do things differently. This, is, this fits with what we've been. Mm -hmm. and and just began to engage with that so just a technical question in the sense that um, you know typically in the west when we start a church we'll gather you know a core group of people and start a sunday uh service and 
and try to attract people to it. And, and these kinds of situations overseas, they were seeing more people come to faith and, and churches or ecclesia evolving out of that. Was there any um, discord between sort of the American mindset church planting that, you know, the vineyard had in starting churches here and what they were seeing in ecclesia develop overseas? Yeah, I think that the challenges are that 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 even though the DMM people are great at counting, the the question the vineyard has, well, which of these are churches? Mm-hmm. And and it's a little bit harder to tell what what when something becomes a church. I mean, I just had a conversation a few weeks ago with the chair of the history and theology department of a seminary nearby, and and I had run into him. And, and noticed that one of his research interests was the ecclesiology of rapidly multiplying simple church movements. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I have an interest in that. And so I went down and, and bought him lunch and kind of quizzed him on some of his thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's not clear cut when something becomes a church. So that was one of the challenges. Okay, how do we count these if we're counting churches? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it really is a decentralized model that, that, sort of can't be under control of people. Yeah. And so I think when organizations develop, sometimes the goal is to have more control. <laughs> and and God's way generally seems to be around less control. Mm-hmm. And so I think there can be a bit of conflict there. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that is harder to happen is, is we've ended up where, where pastors are viewed as legitimate if they receive a salary. Mm-hmm. And of course, biblically, that has absolutely nothing to do with either the calling or the role of what a pastor is. Yeah. But monetizing things in a in a disciple making movement is more challenging. There just isn't a clear way to gain critical mass than so people are legitimate as as pastors. So those were a few of the points of, mm-hmm. of difference in that that have caused some tension over the years. We'll get back to our guests in just a moment. But for those of you that like to connect with New Generations, newgenerations.org is a great place to go and find out information about things like uh, ending scripture poverty, a very unique and disruptive approach to providing oral scripture to tribes that have never had the Bible in their heart language. Or you can find out about engagement to movement. Maybe you and or your church would want to be involved in, in helping get a unreached people group uh, to a stage in movement where the gospel can be planted and replicated in their world. So if you'd like to find out more about those, please go to newgenerations.org and you can find out about that. If you're in the North American region and you want to connect with our North American branch, you can go to newgenerations.us, find out about the habits training, how to become a multiplying disciple, and how to get involved in a network of people who are establishing teams to eradicate gospel poverty in their area. So thanks so much for listening today. We're going to get right back to our guests. Yeah. So that, uh, I, as I've noticed, and I, I know that the history of this, there's, been, there's also a sort of a backflow that happens in this situation. You get these American churches that are investing uh, in, in global situations and seeing these kind of things happen. And then all of a sudden, at some point, someone asks that critical question, well, if it could happen there, why can't it happen here? Um, and I think y- you began to see that, you know, with the, the vineyard churches. Yep. 
And people began, especially with the COVID, which has now been with us, you know, I don't know, a year and a half or so, yeah. and looks like it will be around a bit longer. I mean, that created an opportunity for people to begin to think more creatively. Mm -hmm. And so most people pivoted by moving online and trying to replicate sort of traditional services, but in a, in a, in a more technologically, I don't know, advantaged way. But others began to say, okay, when we come out of this, things will be different. And so there are a lot of people thinking in terms of how do we do church differently in the future? And particularly, how do we um, not just see saints move between existing churches, but actually people move towards, towards Jesus? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from your vantage point, local church, you know, huge history there, um, global uh, statesman in a sense, and, and really a, uh, uh, a guy who has, has helped a number of people, you know, in, engage in this whole multiplicative disciple-making strategies. Um, when you see Western churches begin to attempt, like, you know, COVID accelerated, I think, what was already happening um, in, in the church. Many, many people, especially those who look at the horizon, were seeing that, you know, the Traditional tractional thing, inviting people to a Sunday morning service uh, was growing less and less effective as, as more and more of our population don't even think of coming to Sunday morning to a religious service as a category for providing healing or finding you know zest for life or anything. It just doesn't enter their mind. So that was waning, but man, COVID just really, you know took the knees out from under us in that sense. So as you, as you see the Western church trying to grapple, you know, with, with this and, and, and then many, many people looking at what's happening, you know, reading miraculous movements, Jerry Trouzo's book and uh, other things. What do you see? I mean, how do you, how do you set from, from your perspective, um, maybe opine for us a little bit, uh, what, what goes on in, in Mark Field's head when you see all this happening? Well, the question for me is, what is God doing? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's the question that, that I'm asking. I mean, again, that for me is a discernment question. And so I'm spending quite a bit of time these days reading Jonathan Edwards and mm -hmm. reading through his account of the Great Awakening, reading, and it just, it's, it's really amazing to me to, to watch him describe what happens when God begins to move in a place. And so I, I'm quite gripped by that and, and ask, you know, joining many others, I'm sure, in asking God to do that again. Now, what I'm doing in my next phase is a couple of pieces, but one of those is I feel a great deal of call to my own community. So I live in Southern California. I mean, I could talk to you about the best places to eat in Singapore or Managua, Nicaragua, yeah but I don't know my own community in some ways. I pastored a church near in a community nearby. We were kind of a regional church, so we drew from a lot of places. And so part of my next phase is I intend to spend time in my own community, mm -hmm. um, simply seeing what God is doing here. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed over the years, and hopefully this will be the most arrogant thing I say today, but I have observed that the people that I hang around or hang around with me seem to move more towards Jesus. Mm -hmm. Like it just inevitably happens. Now, most of those folks are, are 
people in leadership roles, that's who I deal with. Mm -hmm. And I find myself wondering, would that also happen with people outside the church? Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm pressing towards this. And if God blesses that, then I intend to use the principles of DMM. I'm not calling it anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think some of what hurts us is sometimes there's still the pressure here, especially to, okay, if it's a church plant, how you doing? You know, mm -hmm. how many people do you have? Mm -hmm. And thankfully, I'm in a place where no one's going to be asking that question. I'm not declaring it that way. Yeah. I simply am choosing to find ways to invest in my community. And I'm going to be volunteering with some nonprofits here that are not Christian. Mm -hmm. And I am trying to identify ways to be around as many unchurched people as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And so, so I'm committed to that. So this is sort of the putting my money where my mouth is once again. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that will give me the chance to kind of look for some of the obstacles. I mean, I think one of the obvious ones with DMM in the U.S. is, is we don't have strong social networks. So, so the reason that it's multiplied in other parts of the world is because they're more community-oriented cultures what impacts one impacts another. You have the opportunity for what McGavern and other called people movements and some of the early, you know, missiological studies of similar phenomenon or the hope for that. I mean, we don't have that here. And so I'm not quite sure how one overcomes that. I mean, one of the most interesting stories I heard from the Fresh Expressions people in the UK was they were beginning to work within a particular area around London and it was full of immigrants. These were apart apartment buildings that had immigrants, but they were immigrants from all different parts of the world. And they realized that they would never see multiplication because the people were isolated. So what they decided to do was before they began to really do discipleship, they decided to create community within that apartment building. Mm -hmm. And did a number of things just simply to create community within or to make that a community. Mm -hmm. And then with the hope that out of that, as people began to move towards Jesus, then there would be the natural mm -hmm. multiplication that would come. And I'm watching some friends do that. I have a friend who's quite committed to doing DMM in a similar place to me. He's older than me, has a missions history, retired as a pastor, and they're simply building community in their neighborhood in the anticipation that that will then allow the multiplication of disciples as people move towards Jesus. Yeah, that was one of our early learnings at Shoal Creek was the fact that we were trying to plant the gospel in a neighborhood and the neighbors weren't neighborly. <laughs> and as a result, you know, there's no network. You're just going house by house by house. And it's like, wait, we've got to back up. And, you know, this is something I didn't learn in my theological education, how to build community. You know, how, how do you, how do people gather? Why do they gather? You know, and so, you know, I, I began to, you know, become a sociologist in that sense, you know, I have to figure out, you know, what, what makes, what makes these things tick in that sense. So, yeah, it's uh, crazy. So if, if I were, um, a, 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 let's say I'm a, a local vineyard pastor uh, or on staff at a vineyard church and, and I hear about this DMM thing and I'm thinking, what place is at play? you know, in my church or uh, in, in the ministry here in my area? What, what kind of counsel or, or coaching would, would you give me? 
So, so I would, I mean, I would suggest that you become familiar with the principles of it because it's easy to think that it's just discovery Bible study. And although that is a central part of it, obviously, there's much more to it prior to and after DBS. And so I think people need to really understand the various elements of it and gain a familiarity with that in order to avoid kind of doing one piece and wondering why it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And then again, I think the key element, I mean, identifying people of peace is in my mind, a discernment process. I mean, it's seeking to identify the folks within whom Jesus is already at working, drawing people towards himself. And I would suggest that one of my learnings, and I, I won't digress into that other than to say this, is is, is God has been taking me down a path of learning not to judge by the outside. Mm -hmm. And I've had some very important experiences in recent years where I looked around and I wrote off some folks thinking they are clearly the farthest from God. At least they're the farthest from me. Yeah. And I was in a particular setting where I, I went to get some training and I, I knew that I had multiple purposes in being in this particular setting. And um, I looked at these folks and I identified three folks as the farthest from God and sort of judged. And by the end of the two weeks, each of them had cried with me about their relationship with God. And I realized that God is doing things in hearts that are not visible from the outside and that my tendency to judge based on external things often gets in the way. And so I, I'm learning to to not let that be something that puts me off, but rather looks more closely at some of those people who on the outside feel like they're farthest from God. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really a matter then of, of, of prayer, which I think is important. And spiritual formation has been a really important part of my life in the last 15 years. I, I burnt out. I was traveling 150,000 miles or more a year and trying to do a PhD at Fuller. And it just, it was one of the more foolish choices in my life to do that. And in the process of that, I found a new and deeper relationship with Jesus. And so that has what prompted, you know, me giving much more extended periods of time to prayer mm -hmm. and prayer that's not just asking, but prayer that's listening and prayer that involves God forming and changing my heart. And I think that creates a sensitivity towards what God's doing outside the church as I'm sensitive to what God's doing in my own heart and life mm -hmm. and those in the church. So I think growing in those elements of discernment and begin to be out in the community and looking for the places where God is at work and the opportunity to apply the principles in that setting. Yeah. So one of the things I've observed um, in, 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 relating to a lot of different uh, spiritual tribes that exist um, is, is that there are certain sort of uh, embedded things inside that tribe that sort of draws them to sort of DMM thing. And I think one of the things I discover in, inside the vineyard is this kingdom mindset, this kingdom theology. And, and the word kingdom is huge, I think, uh, in, in the whole vineyard area, uh, stuff like that. So in, in light of that, I, I'm, I'm going to, Let's let's get out on thin ice here a little bit. Um, so uh, the gospel that we sort of uh, propagate 
in the West um, tends to be a gospel of forgiveness um, as opposed to maybe a gospel of kingdom. I mean, would you would you agree with that or do you have any insight in, into what that how that impacts uh, modern Christianity? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, the most obvious implication of what you're saying and that observation I would agree with is is one of those is narrow and one of those is much broader. And so the emphasis on the gospel of the kingdom is is a much more is a much broader understanding of of the nature of God's work in the world, including in individual human beings. And so I've I've um, I'm yeah. So 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 there are points in church history where there was a broader understanding of the nature of. God's work in, in a human being's life that had to do with God healing and integrating and bringing a sense of wholeness and really preparing people to be engaged in the world, looking and acting differently than those around them. Mm-hmm. And I would say the emphasis on the kingdom allows for that to be, to be broader in its expression. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to take this one step further a little bit, uh, even though my interests are global as well, chairman of new generations, um, and, and, and so I have a lot of, of connection overseas and that kind of stuff. Uh, my real focus on a day-to-day basis is, is in the U.S. and in, in North America. And, um, and one of the, the things I see about the training that I experienced overseas, because I, I was exposed to DMM overseas as well first, and then, and, and then had to come back here and try to figure it out in my own world, um, is that this, this idea, uh, this gospel um, and, and the fact that, that it's, a, it's a, about the heart of the father, this father who, who wants a family and, and, and he wants to build a kingdom in a sense. And he wants his, his, his subjects to experience the, uh, the favor of the king and his kingdom and, and that kind of thing um, uh, is something that is, is a bit more naturally uh, found in a global setting. Uh, but, but in the cultural Christianity that has pervaded the U.S., um, that, that is not really central. And so I, 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 and I'll, I'm going to make a statement and have you respond to it. I see that as an obstacle uh, for us getting to multiplicative disciple-making through DMM. And so the need to reorient the gospel, almost like uh, having to train people, re-gospel them before we get them focused on, is that, would you, how would you see that? Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. I mean, my, as I understand what you're saying, my observation of American Christianity is that we have moved to the point that becoming a Christian means that I believe certain propositions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that verse in the Bible that says even the devil believes. So, mm-hmm. so maybe simply if belief is only, I don't know, affirmation of certain truths, mm-hmm. That's not what God is asking of us or the, the extent of what God is asking of us. And it seems to me that what God really wants is to, is to work in our lives. And so there was a book that was very pivotal for me personally some years ago, and I reread it at least once a year, and it's entitled To Love as God Loves. 
Hmm. And the author of that book makes the argument and draws from a very interesting source, and, and I won't go into all of that, but in, in church history, but that really the intent of God is to make us into people that love in the way that God loves. Hmm. And maybe that's not true for you, but for me, that requires a lot of transformation hmm. because I'm a long way from loving like God loves hmm. in that unconditional way. And I've already shared a bit of my own tendency to judge Mm-hmm. you know, on the externals and to, and to make assessments quickly about people and where they stand with God. Mm-hmm. And so to move past that is a journey in which God works deeper and deeper and deeper in our lives. And it seems to me that what God wants to do is to transform us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not laying aside justification. That's not a works-oriented gospel it is simply the life that Jesus draws us into of following him. And that was one of the things that, uh, one of the many things that DMM shares with the origins of the vineyard. Wimber was criticized because he took the gospels as a priority. I mean, this was years ago. Now that's less controversial than it was then, Mm -hmm. but people didn't want to deal with narrative. You had whole schools that dismissed the Sermon on the Mount as as for another age. Now, it would be a lot easier for my Christian life if the Beatitudes were irrelevant, but I don't believe that they are in this world. Mm -hmm. And so I see God leading us to a place in which lives are really transformed and they're transformed by a regular encounter with the living Jesus. Mm So I don't want people to miss this. Um, you, you kind of modeled uh, as, as, a, as a, a coach in a sense, but you, you mentioned that, you know, you're starting to, to love where you live in that sense. You know, you know all the restaurants in Managua and all that kind of stuff, but you're focusing on, you know, your, your local area and, and leaning into uh, folks um, in, in the not-for-profit arena. So I, I see sort of your personal strategy as, is getting involved in practicing. You know, I think so many people get involved in sort of thinking and trying to put all the pieces together and stuff. But I, I love that, uh, that. That seems important to you to actually put it into practice uh, yep. in, in that regard. Uh, I know a lot of local church pastors struggle with that. Um, they, they work and live in and around Christians and, and they want to establish a multiplicative disciple-making ministry, and yet they're sort of telling people what to do, not showing them what to do. Um, how, how important do you think that is in that that local leadership situation? Well, I think it's absolutely important. I mean, I think I can tell other people what to do forever. <laughs> <laughs> Result in any change. But yeah. my the effectiveness of my leadership, particularly in the role that I've had, um, in the last you know 20, 20 some years has been by leading by example mm-hmm. and i need to continue to do that i've done it more in this role than i did as a pastor and i assume that that's the result of of my own maturity so I, I, I think it's not tied to role. I think it's my growth and the realization that i really do have to be living out what um what I'm inviting others into and that people are drawn that so much is, you know, as the saying goes more caught than taught. Yeah. So it's only when I'm actually out there doing it, that people will see that and begin to engage in that. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we've just made pastoring a much more complicated thing than, than really God intended. I recently reread um, Eugene Peterson's book, Working the Angles, and I had read his trilogy as a pastor. And the truth is, at that time, all it did was create guilt for me. Mm. You know, he talked about what a, the calling of a pastor is in, in three books, that being one of those. And I knew he was right, but the cultural expectations on a growing church and the requirements for management and staff and, you know, preaching a better sermon and all of those things just consumed. Mm-hmm. And I read that book and I thought, and the, the introduction is scathing. I mean, it's really hard if you are or have been a pastor to read. I mean, Peterson is just unrelenting in his assessment of what's happened to the American church. And that book was published in the late 80s. So it's yeah. 30 years old at this point. Yeah. yeah. I read that again and I said, this is what I'm called to be. This yeah. is what I'm called to do. And he argues that the role of the pastor is really around prayer and the study and teaching of scripture and around what he calls spiritual direction, which is traditionally called the care of souls, which Mm -hmm. is helping people move towards health and maturity from wherever they are. Mm -hmm. And there's a missional part in each of those things. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I got a couple other questions as we draw to close here, but um, uh, one of of it relates to uh, sort of, um, you you alluded to it a few minutes ago um, in the the fact that uh, many people, when they grab a hold of uh, this idea of DMM, uh, they get sort of intoxicated on the form and maybe they get sort of singularly focus on discovery Bible study and, and mistake that that's the be all to end all and that kind of stuff. What's, what's the dangers of, of focusing on tactics like that um, and, and just sort of drilling down on the tactics and, and overusing words and stuff when you're, you're trying to involve people in following you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it becomes the focus on technique, and that's not what this is about. This is about helping people encounter Jesus directly. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that made DMM attractive to me was DBS, and what made DBS attractive to me was the similarity between it and the traditional spiritual practice of Lexio Divina. Mm-hmm. And there are times in the history of Alexio Divina that emphasized obedience, as DBS does. Mm-hmm. But the purpose of it was to help people hear God for themselves mm-hmm. and then choose to be obedient. When we went to visit what was happening through City Team in the San Francisco Bay Area, one of the guys that went with us was a, was a Spanish-speaking, born in Mexico, vineyard pastor, pastors quite a large church. And we were, we left our time, our week there. And he goes, I just don't believe it. And I go, what don't you believe? He goes, I don't believe people are doing this. I said, well, why don't you believe it? He said, I don't believe it because people in my church don't listen to my sermons and do what I say. (laughs) And I said, you know, maybe there's something to be learned there because you, you hear, and you think you're giving your best. And this guy's a good teacher and has a lot of education and knows his theology and there's no critique there. And then people are hearing you and they're saying, well, I wonder if he really heard God and what of this really is God. And there's just all kinds of space in there to find ways to exit or disregard or forget or whatever. 
But when you're looking at the Bible and you're saying, this is what I'm saying to this group of people God is asking me to do, you're sort of removing the middleman yeah. and it becomes a little bit more challenging to disregard what I've affirmed at some level is God inviting me to. Yeah. And so I think that the technique facilitates that. And so the problem is seeing the technique as the end or the steps or DBS, rather than it being the thing that facilitates people to encounter a God who desperately desires relationship with them and sent his son mm -hmm. to live as one and die in order to facilitate that. Like God's made his heart clear. Yeah. So I think that's the problem is not, or the danger is seeing those things as techniques and not a key part of the process of introducing people to a real relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So uh, we don't want to lose track with Mark Fields. I know this, the, the vineyard chapter of global missions type stuff is closing. What, what's the next chapter look like for you? Yeah, so I think it's three things for me. One is I want to continue learning. So, I mean, since I finished my PhD, I've done several other formal kinds of education things in a variety of settings that have just really expanded my thinking. And I'm going to continue doing that. So I and I specifically want to learn about Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans and Historically in the church, there's sort of three somewhat systematic ways of doing discernment, and this is the one I haven't studied, so I want to keep learning and growing, and as it happens, the a center for Jonathan Edwards study on the West Coast happens to be located at a seminary uh, six miles from my house, so I can actually walk there, so I'm in conversation with them. Secondly, is I'm going to be involved in my community, and I have talked a little bit about that. I'm, I'm making that commitment and I'm going to see what God does in that. And then I've given a lot of my time the last years to caring for leaders and helping them develop a real deep, an ever deepening relationship with Jesus. And so once my role, um, move from being primarily pioneering in new areas to caring for our existing leaders, um, and so I'm going to continue to give a good hunk of my time to folks inside and outside the vineyard in making sure that they don't experience what Paul was fearful of in 1 Corinthians 9, where he said, perhaps being having preached to others, I'm disqualified myself. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of people who seem to fit that category in the American church in recent years, and it's yeah. been heart wrenching and painful and I want to do my part to not be one of those and to help other people not be disqualified when they themselves have preached to others. Yeah. Well, Mark, thanks so much for your time. Uh, you know, you, uh, you said something that you thought might be a, a, a preposterous or braggadocious. I forget the word you use, but uh, uh, spending time with you does make me want to spend more time with you. So I'm hoping uh we, we can do this again and maybe face to face. You've been such a good friend to uh, new generations uh, over the years. And uh, we want to continue to, to uh, pull you close and closer now that you've got more availability. So uh, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Blessings to you. All right. Thanks for joining us on Movement Conversations, a podcast powered by new generations. If you're looking for more information on New Generations, you can go to newgenerations.org. There you'll find information on 
ending scripture poverty or engagement to movement or any of the other strategic initiatives that we have attempting to fulfill the Great Commission in our lifetime. If you happen to be in North America, you can go to newgenerations.us or newgenerations.ca and find out about things like the Habits course, a course for helping learn to become a multiplying disciple. And there you can join other men and women in North America who are attempting to build these strategic communities to fulfill the Great Commission through disciple-making that replicates through their social networks. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast. Look forward to when we drop the next one and having you with us.